was just leaving the theater. <laughs> 1969 gold Cadillac with the white material and I drove it up here. And I started to do some thinking. Around in it on the freeway and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Looking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday noon to two. On the freeway. Good I am I'm a total Up in the head, Mutiny Radio Festival, Ahoy! Ah, very good! Ah, very good, Legless Joe! I'm surprised you can see from the crow's nest with no legs! It's to get ready! Crew, the festival is upon us! Scurry Steve, how many comics? Over a hundred comics! You're looking good, Scurvy Steve. Glad the scurvy hasn't taken you. Aye, aye, Captain. You, No Liver Mary, how many venues? We've got nine venues, sir. And you, boy, what's your name? Very good. And finally, Eleven Fingers Sally. What about the tickets? You can find all of your tickets on Eventbrite, sir. Check out www.mutinyradio.fm What is that? I don't know what a website is. I'm a pirate. (laughs) (laughs) But quick to the festival. All sails ahead. Pirate noises. Ambiance. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk, MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Holy Patrick, Namaste. Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop, streaming live on MutinyRadio.fm. Lift the veil from your third eye on joke creation and what it takes to be a stand-up comic in the five shakasanas of San Francisco's comedy scene. This all-ages open mic invites comics. In the deep, deep different facts of life that we must know about. And when you think about 
greatest nations of the earth, the various religions of the earth, the various nationalities, the various people all over the world, we have been able to make anything that we want to make and do anything we want to do. have created miracles, but it don't make sense when we can't make peace. You know, you made everything else, wise men, great men, from every nation in the world, all the countries in the world, have all kinds of conventions and festivals spend all the money. Suppose you had to spend half as much money on trying to make peace as you have been making war. We wouldn't have to worry about nothing. But it don't make sense. It don't make sense. It don't make sense. When you can't make peace.
Because I want you for my baby all the time. Darling, can't you see that I'm falling? Because I want you for my darling all the time. Oh, the 
mean as much as Y-O-U's sweetheart. Can't we make a little love start by the flame in your heart all the time? All the time. Back to where we were. <clears throat> okay, well let's. This is Labor and Love Radio. Ellie Dixon. Excellent song. Can't make peace. That's wonderful. All over the world. Then we had a couple of uh, Willie's songs. I want to play one before we get into the show. I want to play one by Bach. Just a work in the life. 
factory whistle cries and walk through these gates death in their eyes and you just better believe boy somebody's gonna get hurt tonight it's work it's work just a work in life it's work it's work just a work in life Bruce Springsteen there talking about a working man's life, life that his father had. Okay, well, let's see what we got. We are in the Speedo. Speedos are things that we, at this show, represent. So you're not that into politics. Your boss is. Your landlord is. Your banker is, your insurance company is, and every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. Time to get into politics. This one is about immigrants. welfare that everybody seems to think they can get so easily. All this stuff is not fault of immigrant workers. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars, whose sages are silent, and whose bigots haunt the airways. Pity the nation. Praises not its 
voice except to praise conquerors and acclaim the bully as hero and aims to rule the world by force and by torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own. No other culture but its own. Pity the nation whose breath is money and keeps them too well fed. Pity the nation of how their rights grow their Let's look at our first feature here. Of course, we're fixated as everyone in the world is. What's going on in Gaza? And um, even think of the war prayer. Clemens, otherwise by Mark Twain. It was a time of great and exalting excitement. The country was up in arms. The war was on. In every breast burned the holy fire of patriotism. The drums were beating, the bands playing, the toy pistols popping, the bunched firecrackers hissing and spluttering. On every hand and far down the receding and fading spread of roofs and balconies, a fluttering wilderness of flags flashed in the sun. Daily the young volunteers marched down the wide avenue, gay and fine in their new uniforms. The proud fathers and mothers and sisters and sweethearts cheering them with voices choked with happy emotion as they swung by. Nightly the packed mass meetings listened, panting, to patriot oratory which stirred the deepest deeps of their hearts, and which they interrupted at briefest intervals with cyclones of applause, the tears running down their cheeks the while. In the churches the pastors preached devotion to flag and country, and invoked the god of battles, besieging his aid in our good cause in outpourings of fervid eloquence which moved every listener. It was indeed a glad and gracious time, and the half-dozen rash spirits that ventured to disapprove of the war and cast a doubt upon its righteousness straightway got such a stern and angry warning that for their personal safety's sake they quickly shrank out of sight, and offended no more in that way. Sunday morning came. Next day the battalions would leave for the front. The church was filled. The volunteers were there, their young faces alight with martial dreams, visions of the stern advance, the gathering momentum, the rushing charge, the flashing sabers, the flight of the foe, the tumult, the enveloping smoke, the fierce pursuit, the surrender. Then, home from the war, bronzed heroes, welcomed, adored, submerged in golden seas of glory. With the volunteers sat their dear ones, proud, happy, and envied by the neighbors and friends, who had no sons and brothers to send forth to the field of honor, there to win for the flag, or, failing, 
die the noblest of noble deaths. The service proceeded. A war chapter from the Old Testament was read. The first prayer was said. It was followed by an organ burst that shook the building, and with one impulse the house rose with glowing eyes and beating hearts, and poured out that tremendous invocation, God the All-Terrible, Thou who ordainest, thunder thy clarion and lightning thy sword. Then came the long prayer. None could remember the like of it for passionate pleading and moving and beautiful language. The burden of its supplication was that an ever-merciful and benignant father of us all would watch over our noble young soldiers and aid, comfort, and encourage them in their patriotic work, bless them, shield them in the day of battle and the hour of peril, bear them in his mighty hand, make them strong and confident, invincible in the bloody onset, help them to crush the foe, grant to them and to their flag and country imperishable honor and glory. An aged stranger entered and moved with slow and noiseless step up the main aisle, his eyes fixed upon the minister, his long body clothed in a robe that reached to his feet, his head bare, his white hair descending in a frothy cataract to his shoulders, his seamy face unnaturally pale, pale even to ghastliness. With all eyes following him and wondering, he made his silent way. Without pausing, he ascended to the preacher's side, and stood there waiting. With shut lids, the preacher, unconscious of his presence, continued with his moving prayer, and at last finished it with the words uttered in fervent appeal, Bless our arms, grant us the victory, O Lord our God, Father and Protector of our land and flag. The stranger touched his arm, motioned him to step aside, which the startled minister did, and took his place. During some moments he surveyed the spell-bound audience with solemn eyes in which burned an uncanny light. Then, in a deep voice, he said, I come from the throne, bearing a message from Almighty God. The words smote the house with a shock. If the stranger perceived it, he gave no attention. He has heard the prayer of his servant, your shepherd, and will grant it, if such shall be your desire, after I, his messenger, shall have explained to you its import, that is to say, its full import. For it is like unto many of the prayers of men, in that it asks for more than he who utters it is aware of, except he pause and think. God's servant and yours has prayed his prayer. Has he paused and taken thought? Is it one prayer? No, it is two. One uttered, the other not. Both have reached the ear of him who heareth all supplications, the spoken and the unspoken. Ponder this. Keep it in mind. If you would beseech a blessing upon yourself, beware lest without intent you invoke a curse upon a neighbor at the same time. If you pray for the blessing of rain upon your crop which needs it, by that act you are possibly praying for a curse upon some neighbor's crop which may not need rain and can be injured by it. You have heard your servant's prayer, the uttered part of it. I am commissioned of God to put into words the other part of it that part which the pastor, and also you in your hearts, 
fervently prayed silently, and ignorantly and unthinkingly, God grant that it was so. You heard these words, Grant us the victory, O Lord our God. That is sufficient. The whole of the uttered prayer is compact into those pregnant words. Elaborations were not necessary. When you have prayed for victory, you have prayed for many unmentioned results which follow victory, must follow it, cannot help but follow it. Upon the listening spirit of God fell also the unspoken part of the prayer. He commandeth me to put it into words. Listen. O Lord our Father, our young patriots, idols of our hearts, go forth to battle. Be thou near them. With them in spirit we also go forth from the sweet peace of our beloved firesides to smite the foe. O Lord our God, help us to tear their soldiers to bloody shreds with our shells. Help us to cover their smiling fields with the pale forms of their patriot dead. Help us to drown the thunder of the guns with the shrieks of their wounded writhing in pain. Help us to lay waste their humble homes with a hurricane of fire. Help us to wring the hearts of their unoffending widows with unavailing grief. Help us to turn them out roofless with little children to wander unfriended the wastes of their desolated land in rags and hunger and thirst, sports of the sun-flames of summer and the icy winds of winter broken in spirit, worn with travail, imploring thee for the refuge of the grave, and denied it. For our sakes, who adore thee, Lord, blast their hopes, blight their lives, protract their bitter pilgrimage, make heavy their steps, water their way with their tears, stain the white snow with the blood of their wounded feet. We ask it in the spirit of love, of him who is the source of love and who is the ever-faithful refuge and friend of all that are sore beset, and seek his aid with humble and contrite hearts. Amen. After a pause, ye have prayed it. If ye still desire it, speak. The messenger of the Most High waits. It was believed afterward that the man was a lunatic, because there was no sense in what he said. End of the War Prayer by Mark Twain The War Prayer by Mark Twain pointing out to us all exactly what war is. Or the the winners count it one way, the people who think they win, and the losers count it another way. But it's all war. And it perverts us. How about this war song? Entirely? I just want to ask the question, who really cares to save a world in despair? Who really cares? And follows a water crisis in Flint that began four years ago. Thousands of people to the 
Mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. Brother, brother, brother. 25, it's going to be a black male in a white t-shirt. There's far too many of you dying. 14 million more you Americans know we've got to find next year. This deadly mass shooting to bring some love here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the answer, for only love can conquer Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see the blue. 
This is a Radio Labour World Report recorded on Friday, November 10th, 2023. I'm Mark Bolasha. In the report this week, a special program on one of Labour's greatest victories, the International Health and Safety Accord in the garment and textile industries. The Labour Start report about union events and singing. This is Radio Labor. I would say that the Accord is probably one of the most successful things the International Trade Union movement has ever done. That is Otla Hania, the General Secretary of Industrial Global Union. He was referring to the International Accord on Health and Safety in the garment and textile industries in Bangladesh and Pakistan. Industrial is the global union federation which represents more than 50 million union members in 140 countries. They work in the supply chains of mining, energy, manufacturing, and the textile and garment industries. It and Uni Global Union were instrumental in getting clothing brands to adopt an international accord on health and safety after a disastrous collapse of a building in the Rana Plaza near Dakar, Bangladesh. The accident killed 1,134 mainly young women garment workers and injured more than 2,500. After the accident, the labor movement and the International Labor Organization worked to get major clothing brands to improve the health and safety conditions in the country's factories. More than 200 major brands have signed the agreement. However, many companies in the United States, such as Walmart, have refused to sign on. I asked Mr. Haya to describe what the labor movement did after the Rana Plaza disaster. We managed to negotiate an agreement with 200 of the biggest brands to ensure health and safety in the textile and garment industry in Bangladesh. And we have installed a team of engineers that do inspections in all of the factories that produce these clothing brands. We have made, I think, about 60,000 inspections in that tragic incident. There have been close to 300,000 corrections that have been made. What countries does it cover? And are there plans to extend it to other countries? Well, as I said, this came about because of this disaster in Bangladesh. So over the first 10 years, it was about Bangladesh. 
Then we had an extension of the agreement one and a half years ago where we agreed with the brand that we should try to extend to one more country. And uh, late last year, we decided that that country could be Pakistan. Now we're building up the infrastructure. We've started inspections and we'll roll out the full program in Pakistan over the next year. Then we have now agreed on an extension of the whole international accord for another six years. And in the new agreement, there is uh, a uh, process of expanding to new countries. Uh, we don't know how many because that depends on the progress in the countries where we're already operating. But I'm, I'm optimistic enough to say that we will have expanded by the six years to hopefully three more countries. And we have done feasibility studies already in big parts of India. We have done it in Morocco and we've done it in Sri Lanka, which are three of the countries that are most uh, in desperate need of an accord system. So I hope that uh, these or other countries they think happy will be the ones that will be the next ones in line. So tell me, how how does it happen that uh, the accord gets accepted in a country? Do you work with the employer groups? Do you work with the governments? Do you work with the trade unions? How do you convince a country to become a participant in the international accord? Well, we have to work with all the parties that are involved in this. We need permission, of course, of governments. The government needs to welcome us. We need the cooperation of industry. So that means the employers will have to work with us. Of course, there's no point for us as industrial to do this if our trade unions don't want it, so they have to be on board. And the brands, of course, uh, need to be on board. So what we do is that uh, when we've made the feasibility study and we decide to go to another country, we will start discussing with regional and national government, and we will start discussing with employers. And we will, of course, tell them about the accord, how it will work, how they will be involved, and the benefits of the whole industry. And obviously, a big pressure point is that the brands will not continue business industries that don't live up to the standards that are in the accord. If they don't live up to the standards of the accord, they can't work in the country? Is that is that part of the accord? Part of the accord is that if a factory does not meet the standards and does not make the improvements that are needed after one of our, our inspections, then the brands are not allowed to place orders in that factory. With the success that the Accord has had, have you found it easier to talk companies into participating in the Accord? We have, as you might have heard, had big challenges with brands in the U.S. They have in Bangladesh made their own system, which we feel is not really up to speed. And we, of course, invite all the American brands into the Accord, but that has been difficult. They now seem to show more interest as we are moving on to other countries. It is a challenge, but we have most of the big brands in the world on board, so that is an incentive. And we know that those brands who are not in the accord, they have to make sure they have their own set of guarantees to ensure health and safety. And I don't think there's any more rational and efficient way to do that than being part of the accord. That is one of the arguments that hopefully eventually will convince all the brands. For the first time, the Accord will cover freedom of association. How will this work? Do you expect this to increase the number of workers who will be able to join a union? Well, what the new Accord does is that it recognizes the extreme importance that freedom of association and freedom of rights collective bargaining has on the health and safety. The Accord itself doesn't include in its scope freedom of association, 
but Freedom Radio Association is recognized as an important building block. And that means that we will have a Freedom of Association and the right to collective bargaining into the mechanisms of the Accord. That means that it will be part of the training curricula, because through the Accord, uh, there has to be training of all the health and safety committees in the factories, and there has to be all employee training. This will be in the training, and it will also eventually be in the complaints, because there is a complaint mechanism connected to the Accord, for any employee of any of the factories that produce for these brands and send a complaint if they have issues with health and safety before, but now also if they have issues on freedom of association. Whether that will result in more people joining, I, I would hope so, but that remains to be seen. The Accord is a legally binding agreement. How does this work? How will it be enforced? It's enforced through international treaties. So there is, in the end, if we can't find the solution, binding arbitration. So if we say that a brand does not live up to the different elements of the accord, we can take the brand to binding arbitration that is administered by the permanent court arbitration in The Hague. And any settlement that comes out of this arbitration is legally binding any court or any jurisdiction where the brand has its operation. This whole thing sounds like a major victory for the labor movement. Can you describe it like that? So I think that the Accord itself is one of the major achievements of the international trade union movement, and now we have a sustained solution for the next six years with a possibility of expansion to new countries, and as you said, uh, an inclusion of the right to collective bargaining and uh, freedom of association. I would say that the Accord is probably one of the most successful things that the International Trade Union movement has ever done. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top story section included links to the strike calls that have been the Nigerian labour movement's response to the assault suffered by a union leader, the death of yet another Bangladeshi garment worker shot by police as she joined her comrades in demanding a living wage, and a national general strike in Finland where unions are organizing in response to regressive labor law changes. Other top stories this week include the warning strikes by almost a half a million public sector workers in Canada and the launch of a campaign to protect Serbian airline union activists from employer retribution. A random sample from our news pages includes articles about a series of strikes across Iran two weeks ago and a teacher's protest against government fiscal and education policies in northern Cyprus. But my favorite top story of the week was the start of the 15th annual Canadian Labor International Film Festival. The festival combines real-world and streaming events across Canada. Festival goers get to see films from around the world that have a focus on work, workers, and working class experiences and culture, films that would never otherwise come to their attention. On our Working Women news page, you'll find accounts of continuing sexual abuse at McDonald's restaurants in the United Kingdom and how women workers there are pushing back. A video that details the struggles of Afghan women food workers as they continue to organize and more on the effects that unionizing has had on domestic workers in Jamaica. And from Romania, we carried the story of impunity for those behind a smear campaign directed at women journalists. Stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week include a resurgence in, quote, death by overwork, and quote, 
in Chinese electronics factories, the start of a new push for a safer shipbreaking sector around the world, and increasingly urgent calls for an end to the targeting of South African police by violent gangs. Our current photo of the week is a simple shot of the banner of the International Labour Organization. The ILO is not well known amongst most trade unionists, but the tripartite, which is to say workers, employers and governments, body sets global labour standards. Yet again, the employers group of the ILO is pressing an attack on the right to strike. The workers group, led by the International Trade Union Confederation and the Global Union Federations, are mobilizing to push back when the ILO meets next June. Labor Start hosts online solidarity actions at the request of unions around the world. This week, we'd like to highlight urgent appeals for online solidarity with trade union activists in Serbia, Georgia, Iran, and Mexico. If you can spare just a few seconds, you can do your part in these struggles by sending a solidarity message. Look for details of these and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackheader from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now, here are the low tide drifters with every stitch. Labor news you can use. I'm Mark Polanche. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
sending very little of that back to the workers. At this point, the workers are saying, part of that is ours. Part of it. You know, when you pair it out, you know, we'll just have a little bit each. But it's something. So this is the uh, union's video, Stand and Strike. Everything working people have ever won, we've won together. Today, America's auto workers are in the fight of our lives. The fight for a decent standard of living. The fight for wages that grow with inflation. The fight to retire with dignity. The fight to protect our communities against plant closures. The fight for better work-life balance so we can see our children grow up and our parents grow old. Winning these demands will take all of us fighting together. It will take a return to our roots. Collective action gave birth to our great union. After years of facing down company thugs, spies, and anti-union laws that favored big business, the auto workers in Flint, Michigan took decisive action. In 1937, they occupied General Motors plants and set off an organizing firestorm in our country. After a few tense months, GM auto workers emerged victorious. They had won their union and a contract. The creativity, discipline, and defiant spirit of auto workers was contagious. The sit-down strike sparked a strike wave that quickly spread across the entire working class, everywhere from auto plants to department stores. Nearly 400,000 workers across the U.S. participated in sit-down strikes in 1937, giving birth to a new industrial labor movement. We are once again returning to our roots and reclaiming our tradition of holding the line for working people against unchecked corporate power. That is why we are launching a new kind of strike against Ford, GM, and Stellantis. This is our generation's answer to the sit-down strike of the 1930s. We're calling it the stand-up strike. This is a strike that starts small and builds over time as more and more of us stand up and join the fight. This is a strike that keeps the companies guessing as to where and when the next local will walk out. And just as importantly, we are striking the big three, all three. We told them September 14th is a deadline, and we meant it. The big three have made a quarter trillion dollars over the last 10 years. They made 21 billion in profits in the first half of this year alone. We will not stand by as corporate executives and the rich continue to make extraordinary profits while the rest of us continue to get left further and further behind. And I want to be clear, our goal is not to strike. Our goal is to bargain a fair contract. But if we have to strike to win economic and social justice, then we will shut down the big three. We are not afraid to fight for what we deserve. We will stand up for ourselves. We will stand up for our families. We will stand up for our communities. So UAW family, be ready. If your local is called to stand up, I know you'll meet the moment, just like the generations that came before us did.
While some of us are on the picket line, the rest of us will keep organizing our co-workers and our communities. Show management that you are prepared to join the stand-up strike. This is our generation's defining moment. Let's stand up for ourselves and the working class. Let's stand up for future generations. Let's stand up for economic and social justice. Let's stand up and once again make history together. That, of course, was the video that the UAW made prior to the stand-up strike. Just ex but it did explain the tactics they used. Number one, they didn't let on what they were going to do next. It wasn't a big public thing. They, it was a surprise, and it kept the company sort of uh, off their balance. Right? And the clincher was when they struck the one in Kentucky. It's obvious. See, the outstanding thing here is their homework. They did their homework. They did their homework on the auto dealers, so the auto dealers didn't really have a leg to stand on. They checked out the area around them. They sat down and they figured out way to do this, a new tactic. Okay, well, that's the stand-up strike. And, of course, by now we know that they won a substantial, a substantial contract. Of course, not everything they wanted, but a lot of things that they had given away. Pension. Benefits were taken away. They had single tier. They had uh, two tier hiring. So, anyway, that was that's the stand up strike. And how about some labor history in two minutes? One of my favorites, Dorothy Day, is featured this week. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1959. That was the day that the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a decision that would be a blow to the cause of labor. Striving for the kind of major gains they had won in 1956, the half a million members of the United Steelworkers of America once again went out on strike. The steel industry was extremely profitable, and the workers demanded to share in the fruits of their labor. Management wanted the ability to introduce new technology and policies to cut hours and employees. The strike wore on for more than 100 days. President Dwight D. Eisenhower ordered the steelworkers back to the plants. 
he argued that the Taft-Hartley Act gave him the legal means to issue the order. A decade earlier, Congress had passed the Taft-Hartley Act over President Harry Truman's veto as a way to curtail union rights. The steelworkers protested the constitutionality of the law all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The union lost. In making its decision, the court referenced President Eisenhower's explanation of the impact of the strike, writing, quote, The strike has closed 85% of the nation's steel mills, shutting off practically all new supplies of steel. Over 500,000 steel workers and about 200,000 workers in related industries, together with their families, have been deprived of their usual means of support. Present steel supplies are low, and the resumption of full-scale production will require some weeks. If production is not quickly resumed, severe effects upon the economy will endanger the economic health of the nation. The next January, the union and management signed a new contract. The workers won a seven-cent-an-hour raise, a new automatic cost-of-living adjustment, improvements in their pension and health care benefits, and job protections against proposed automation. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1982. That was the day that 11 women graduated from the New York City Fire Academy. They were the first women firefighters ever to serve in the city of New York since the department was founded in 1865. The inclusion of women firefighters did not come easily in New York. In 1977, for the first time, women were allowed to apply to be firefighters. Although many women had passed the written part of the exam, they were continually denied employment because they failed the physical test. The women sued citing discrimination. One of the leaders of the suit was applicant Brenda Berman. The federal district court in Brooklyn sided with the women. Not everyone was happy about the decision. A group of demonstrators came to City Hall before the graduation with signs reading, quote, I want to be saved by firemen. The Uniformed Firefighters Association also challenged the ruling. They tried to block the ceremony in the courts, arguing that training requirements had been changed to accommodate the women. Despite the legal challenges, the ceremony went on as scheduled. In his speech, Mayor Ed Koch said, quote, As all of us have known all along, bravery and valor know no sex. After the graduation, the controversy over women firefighters continued. The women often faced sexual harassment on the job and vilification on the editorial pages of the city's newspapers. Bumper stickers reading, quote, Don't send a girl to do a man's job could be seen on the car bumpers of many male firefighters and at the city's firehouses. The women firefighters stood up to the harassment, testifying before the city council and holding street demonstrations to bring awareness to the discrimination. I'm Rick and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1897. That was the day that Dorothy Day, a leader of the Catholic worker movement, was born in Brooklyn, New York. As a young girl, her family moved to San Francisco. Her father lost his job as a sports writer due to the devastating earthquake of 1906, and the family relocated again to Chicago. In 1932, she met Peter Morin, 
and together they founded the Catholic Worker Movement, a faith-based social justice effort. The Catholic workers opened what they called Houses of Hospitality to serve those in need. Dorothy helped to co-found the Catholic Worker, a monthly newspaper that became a voice for poor and working people. While writing for the paper, Dorothy traveled and visited with some of the most exploited workers in the country. She talked with migrant agricultural workers in California and was arrested for supporting the United Farm Workers in 1973. In 1940, she visited the Hooverville encampment in Seattle, Washington. Dorothy's reporting vividly demonstrated how her faith informed her activism. She wrote, quote, The rain poured down, underneath was mud, ankle deep, and the long lane that cut between the rows of shacks reflected the gray clouds in its pools. But Christ is there. I thought sadly, there in the mud, in the shacks with his poor, with them he is trying to find a place to lay his head. With them he hungers, and with them he suffers fatigue of body and soul. Behold, O God, our Redeemer, and look upon the face of thy Christ. There in the dumps, among the creatures who still are men, have pity on them and on us who permit such things to be. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1952. That was the day that the labor movement lost Philip Murray. Philip was born in Scotland in 1886 to an Irish Catholic family. His father was a coal miner and a union leader. Philip followed his father into the mines at just the age of 10 years old. The father and son made the trip to the Pennsylvania coal fields together when Philip was just 16. They saved enough money and then sent for the rest of their family. One day, Philip got into an altercation with one of his bosses. Not only was he fired, his entire family was kicked out of their company home. From that point on, Philip was dedicated to the union cause as the only hope for working people. He quickly rose through the ranks of the United Mine Workers, becoming vice president by the time he was 33. He worked closely with United Mine Workers president John L. Lewis. During the 1930s, there became a nationwide drive to organize industrial workers. Philip was appointed to lead the Steelworkers Organizing Committee, a key sector for the industrial effort. The Steelworker campaign met with historic success. They reached a collective bargaining agreement with U.S. Steel, the giant of the industry. Philip went on to become the first president of the United Steelworkers of America, as well as president of the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Under his leadership, industrial labor became a powerful force. But that force was checked by the passage of the Anti-Union Taft-Hartley Act in 1947. The anti-communist hysteria of the Red Scare also took its toll on the CIO, forcing Philip to expel some of the most radical unions from the organization. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1887. That was the day that Louis Ling died in prison while awaiting execution for his alleged role in a bombing at a workers' rally at Haymarket Square in Chicago the year before. Louis was born in Germany. His father worked for a lumber mill. 
One day, while trying to clear a log jam, his father fell into an icy river. Although Lewis's father lived, he could no longer carry the same workload. The company fired him despite his 20 years of service. Lewis began to question a labor system that would let this happen. He became a carpenter's apprentice. Lewis then traveled to Switzerland, where he became acquainted with anarchist worker groups. Finally, in 1885, Lewis made his way to the United States and Chicago. There, he joined the Carpenters and Joiners Union. He became an outspoken advocate for the cause of the eight-hour workday. The movement had great success in Chicago, and on May 1st, or May Day, thousands marched in the streets for the eight-hour cause. When a bomb was thrown at a workers' rally three days later, the backlash against the labor movement was swift and brutal. Eight men, including Louis Ling, stood trial and were convicted despite a lack of evidence tying them to the bombing. Louis Ling and four others were sentenced to death by hanging. But the day before the sentence was to be carried out, Lewis lit a cigar in his prison cell. The cigar was packed with explosives. The explosion left Lewis in agony for hours before he finally died. Some believe he committed suicide rather than die at the hands of the legal system. Others believe he was murdered. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1887. That was the day that four men were hung in Chicago for their alleged role in the bombing at a labor rally at the city's Haymarket Square a year earlier. Eight men were put on trial. Although the prosecution did not prove any of the men had ties to the bombing, five were sentenced to die. Louis Ling died in jail before the execution could take place. The others were martyred for their support of the labor movement and the fight for the eight-hour day. Three of those executed were born in Germany. August Spies and Adolf Fischer worked for a Chicago German-language workers newspaper. George Engel owned a toy store. Backlash against foreign-born anarchists helped stoke public hysteria over Haymarket. The final martyr was Southern-born Albert Parsons, the editor of The Alarm, an English-language workers' paper. The day after they died, the Chicago Tribune reported on the brutality of their execution, writing, quote, Then begins a scene of horror that freezes the blood. The loosely adjusted nooses remain behind the left ear and do not slip to the back of the neck. Not a single neck is broken, and the horrors of a death by strangulation begin. Thousands of mourners joined the funeral procession of the five slain men. In 1893, Governor John Peter Altgeld granted the three defendants still in jail a full pardon. The monument to the Haymarket Eight stands at Forest Home Cemetery, just west of Chicago, drawing visitors from across the world to remember these martyrs for the eight-hour movement. May Day is celebrated as the workers' holiday around the world in commemoration of the events in Chicago. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor.
in the days uh, when this poem was written, peasant men were pressed into service like slaves, and uh, women were left alone all that time. So this poem goes, O western wind, when wilt thou blow? Small rain down can rain. Christ, that my love were in my arms and I in my bed again. That one's called Soldier's Wife because there's a western wind and it starts to rain, they'll call off the war. Work on his farm or This one is by Stephen Crane, who's known as the writer of a book called uh, The Red Badge of Courage. He was a young man, died in his 20s, <clears throat> came out of journalism. He was a journalist who covered a lot of big stories of the time, and of course, here's one Elizabeth. Do not weep, maiden, for war is kind. Because your brother threw wild hands toward the sky, and the affrighted steed ran on alone. Do not weep, war is kind. Hoarse, booming drums of the regiment. Little souls who thirst for fight. These men were born to drill and die. Unexpected glory flies above them. Great is the battle god, great, great. Kingdom sealed. Do not weep, Eden, war is kind. Because your father tumbled in the yellow trenches, ragged at his breast, aged at his breast. Do not weep. Swift, blazing flag of the regiment, eagle with crest of gold. Born to drill and Mother whose heart hung humble as a button on the bright cloud of your dream. Right, let's go to our habituation After reading your book, Doppelganger, 
And then having friends um, who I had never had the discussion around Israel-Palestine before with, um, who I would call liberal Zionists, liberal Zionist friends sort of who are justice minded, who, you know, believe in civil rights, um, you know, who are otherwise progressive, quote, Golda Meir at me, like, tell me that one day we'll be able to forgive the Arabs, we'll be able to forgive ourselves for killing the no, we'll be able to forgive the Arabs for killing us, but we'll never be able to forgive them for making us kill their children. And then, like, are you seriously quoting that at me right now? And there's just, like, it feels like all of a sudden my my friends, and yeah, they are all, they, they are Jewish, they're Jewish Americans, and this is not, I have all, tons of, you know, anti-Zionist Jewish, Jewish friends, married one, um, but suddenly there's, like, a there's been a turn, and it's like, well, this is what we must do Mm. in order to protect our safety, in order to protect that never again motto that so many American Jews and others are speaking out against as evidenced by all the mass actions we've seen over the last yeah. weeks. But yeah. But you, you know, you quoted Biden, right? And that, that's yeah. not the only thing he said. He, he, he also said something just extraordinary. Um, you know, th this is, you know, what this was a month ago. Well, this was definitely before October 7th. Um, some, some people are quoting it as if it happened since, but he actually said it before. He said, without the state of Israel, no Jew will be safe. Yeah. Right? Which is a really incredible thing for the, for, for the president of the United States to say, um, because it's actually his job to keep everybody safe in the United States, including Jewish people. Like, they shouldn't need another state. It, in, we shouldn't need another state in order to be safe. But that was his way of expressing support for Israel because that is absolutely central to what Zionism has told generations of Jewish people, that, we, that it is our safety in a world that will never accept us, that will always turn on us, um, and that anti-Semitism is this primordial force um, right. that is outside of time and history, that there's no way of confronting it, that you, that, that any kind of attempts to fight it through multiracial, multiethnic alliances and, and, and fighting for your universal rights, that's all a waste of time. The only thing you can do is, is put a gun to its head and force it into submission. And so I think what you're hearing from your sort of soft Zionist friends who are suddenly becoming hard Zionists is that this is the education that they grew up with. Right. Um, it, you know, and I write about this in the book that, um, you know, I ho hopefully people will forgive me, but I draw on Philip Roth a fair bit because he wrote this absolutely incredible doppelganger novel called uh, Operation Shylock, which is very relevant in this moment. And the plot of Operation Shylock is that the main character who is named Philip Roth and who has written all of Philip Roth's book mm -hmm. is being dogged by a fake Philip Roth who's running around Jerusalem trying to engineer a reverse exodus of the Jews back to Eastern Europe because he's convinced that everything took a wrong turn when Judaism went all in with Zionism and he's sure that Israel is going to become the coffin of the Jews unless mm -hmm. they get out it'll be another Holocaust. Um, and the reason it's called Operation Shylock is because the argument is that that Jews have every Jew has a doppelganger, and that doppelganger is the money lending, um, mutilating Shylock in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, mm. and so that stands in for this primordial.
I'm talking with uh, Francesca Martini about uh, hold it gets on people. All right. Today's professional parents. All bullshit is bad for you. Now, speaking of parents and speaking of bullshit, uh, two ideas which aren't always mutually exclusive, by the way. I'd like to mention a special kind of bullshit that has taken hold in this country in the last 30 to 40 years. It's a form of bullshit that really only can be called child worship. It's child worship. It's this excessive devotion to children. I'm talking about today's professional parents, these obsessive diaper sniffers <laughs> who are overscheduling and overmanaging their children and robbing them of their childhoods. Even the simple act of playing. Even the simple act of playing has been taken away from children and put on mommy's schedule in the form of play dates. Something that should be spontaneous and free is now being rigidly planned. When does a kid ever get to sit in the yard with a stick anymore? You know, just sit there with a fucking stick. Do today's kids even know what a stick is? You know, you sit in the yard with a fucking stick and you dig a fucking hole. You know, yeah. and you look at the hole and you look at the stick and you have a little fun. But kids don't have sticks anymore. I don't think there are any sticks left. I think they've all been recalled because of lead paint. <laughs> Who would have thought that one day the manufacturing of sticks would be outsourced to China? <laughs> but you know something, a kid shouldn't be wasting his time with a stick anyway. If he's four years old, he should be home studying for his kindergarten entrance exams. <laughs> Do you know about that shit? Oh, they have now, yeah, yeah. There are places that have kindergarten entrance exams. The poor little fuck. The poor little fuck, he can barely locate his dick. You know, and, and already he's being pressured to succeed. Pressured to succeed for the sake of the parents. Isn't this really just a sophisticated form of child abuse? And speaking of that, speaking of child abuse. Speaking of child abuse, next stop, grade school. Grade school, where he won't be allowed to play tag because it encourages victimization. And he won't be allowed to play dodgeball because it's exclusionary. And it promotes aggression. Standing around is still okay. 
Standing around is still permitted, but it won't be for long because sooner or later some kid is going to be standing around and his foot will fall asleep and his parents will sue the school and it'll be goodbye fucking standing around. Yeah. Now, fortunately, all is not lost. All is not lost because at least we know that when he does get to play whatever games he is allowed to play, the child will never lose. We know he'll never lose because in today's America, no child ever loses. There are no losers anymore. Everyone's a winner. No matter what the game or sport or competition, everybody wins. Everybody wins, everybody gets a trophy, no one is a loser. No child these days ever gets to hear those all-important character-building words. You lost, Bobby. <laughs> you lost. You're a loser, Bobby. They miss out on that. You know what they tell a kid who lost these days? You were the last winner. <laughs> a lot of these kids never get to hear the truth about themselves until they're in their 20s when their boss calls them in and says, Bobby, clean the shit out of your desk and get the fuck out of here, you're a loser. Get the fuck out of here. You of course, Bobby's parents can't understand why he can't hold a job. In school, he was always on the honor roll. Well, what they don't understand, of course, is that in today's schools, everyone is on the honor roll. Everyone is on the honor roll because in order to be on the honor roll, all you really need to do is to maintain a body temperature somewhere roughly in the 90s. <laughs> but we shouldn't be worrying about how he's doing in school. Let's not worry about that because come summertime, he'll be off to camp. Yes, he'll be off to camp, but not to swim and hike and play softball. No, 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 no. Today's child will be sent away to lose weight. He'll be sent to fat camp, or computer camp, or violin camp, or ceramics camp, or leadership camp, whatever the fuck that is. <laughs> leadership camp, isn't that where Hitler went? <laughs> Specialized, structured summer camps. Gotta keep the little fucker busy, you know? <laughs> Gotta keep the little fucker busy. Wouldn't want him to sneak in a little unstructured time in the woods. That wouldn't be any good. God knows he might start jacking off. <laughs> now, all of this stupid bullshit that children have been so crippled by has grown out of something called the self-esteem movement. The self-esteem movement began in 1970, and I'm happy to say it has been a complete failure. <laughs> because studies have repeatedly shown that having high self-esteem does not improve grades, does not improve career achievement, it does not even lower the use of alcohol, and most certainly does not reduce the incidence of violence of any sort. Because as it turns out, extremely aggressive, violent people think very highly of themselves. <laughs> Imagine that, sociopaths have high self-esteem. Who oh, what a thunk, huh? I love when this kind of thing happens. I love when these politically correct ideas crash and burn and wind up in the shithouse. Here's another one that bit the dust. This practice of playing Mozart during pregnancy so the fetus can hear it. It was supposed to increase intelligence. Didn't work. Didn't work. All it did was sell a lot of CDs and piss off a whole lot of fetuses. 
The self-esteem movement revolved around a single notion, the idea, the single idea, that every child is special. Boy, they said it over and over and over, as if to convince themselves, every child is special. And I kept saying, fuck you. Every child is clearly not special. Did you ever look at one of them? Did you ever take a good close look at one of these fucking kids? They're goofy. They're fucking goofy looking. They're too small, they're way too fucking small. They're malapportioned, their heads don't fit their bodies, their arms are too weird and everything, they can't walk across the room in a straight line. And when they talk, they talk like I got a mouth full of shit. They're incomplete, incomplete, unfinished work. I never give credit for incomplete work. Now, P.T. Barnum might think they're special, but not me, I have standards. But let's say it's true. Let's grant this. I'm in a generous mood. Let's grant this proposition. Let's say it's true as somehow every child is special. What about every adult? Isn't every adult special too? And if not, then at what age do you go from being special to being not so special? And if every adult is special, then that means we're all special and the whole idea loses all its fucking meaning. Here's another platitude they jam down your throat. Children are our future. Children are not our future. And I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. <laughs> Children can't be our future because by the time the future arrives, they won't be children anymore, so blow me! <laughs> yes. As you may have noticed, I always like to present a carefully reasoned argument. <laughs> Raising a child is not difficult. They try to make it into this mysterious, difficult task. Nothing to it. Easiest thing in the world to raise a kid, if you follow the steps. Looking for my baby and I wonder 
James there with the sky is crying.
for Internacional, several versions of it. Without a patter. We'll gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Namaste. Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop, streaming live on MutinyRadio.fm. Lift the veil from your third eye on joke creation and what it takes to be a stand-up comic. In the five shakasanas of San Francisco's comedy scene, 
This all ages open mic invites Kamehameha. Oh, pre sign by Venmoing two to five dollars at Mutiny Radio. Join us live for a small and special audience at the Mutiny Radio Studio and Gallery Performance Space, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street in the deep, deep, deep mission. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Does my ponytail look cool? Thank you. Namaste. Tuesday used to be the most unlikely night for fun. But every week at 6 p.m., come to OMG's Tuesday Open Mic. And see comics work out new material for free. For free. They get your Tuesday night party on with two-for-one well drink specials during the 6 to 8 p.m. show. Check out Eventbrite to reserve your free seat every Tuesday, 6 p.m. At OMG on Savory 6th Street. Savory 6th Street. Show up to go up. Hey, kids. It's your pal, Spiderman. <laughs> Sorry, Spiderman. Bottomer Spiderman. But I'm not swinging through the senior facility, best in Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the rhino. I'm headed down to Beauty Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got some schlemiels doing the laugh laugh. But hey, don't be a schmuck and donate 2 to $5 on... Hold, hold on, what is this? Let me get my glasses. The print's too small. Then Moe? That's not real. What is that, Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown in on. It's nap time. Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. Join your friends from Mutiny Radio every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Bar on the Water at 29 Candlewalks. Starting after any very important sports game that might happen to be on, you're guaranteed a night of laughter for free. Stress, you'll find all the best in pre-distressed fest right here at the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest. With over 40 vendors selling countless crossover styles, you'll find the perfect thing for your scene. Metal, thrash, Walmart, high-vis, and everything in between. All in one place. One day only. Unless it's a jacket. If you need a jacket, take your square ass somewhere else. 
Never pay for fabric you don't need. Ditch the sleeves, but save the rest for the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest this Saturday only at SeaTac. Bring a can of PBR, get it half price. Daddy, Daddy, what are we going to do today? At 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? Oh, over there at the parklet in front of Atlas Cafe for Titans of Comedy. That, that's Titans of Comedy. Apparently, they've got great sandwiches, cafe drinks, and even some of my favorite beverages, like beer, wine, and sangria. All the things I drink to forget your mother. My new Uncle Blake says you smell like a brewery. What did I say about interrupting me? Anywho, right here on 20th and Alabama in the Deep Mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. For free! Every Saturday, or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates have to see you. It's sunshine! And even in a drizzle, but not too much. And Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. You take it with the freezers. Reservations. Reservations on Eventbrite. Fucking. L.S.D. Fab. Acid and fapping. Fapping and acid. Acid fapping. Fapping and acid. Fap, 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 acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. Listen to live streaming radio. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco. I was just leaving the theater. <laughs> with you <laughs> when I count down to one we will have a lot of fun I'm a rocket and I'm leaving very soon it will be the fastest race as we whiz through outer space I'm a rocket and I'll take you to the moon swish faster than the speed of light swish To one, we will have a lot of fun. I'm a rocket and I'm leaving very soon. It will be the fastest race as we whiz through outer space. I'm a rocket and I'll take you to the moon. Swish! Ten, nine, eight, seven, swish! Six, five, four, three, swish! Two, one, last up, swish! I'll make history When I count down to one We will have a lot of fun I'm a rocket and I'm leaving very soon 
Here we go, blasting off, look out below I'm a rocket and I'll take you to the moon Baby hot. <laughs> the baby. <laughs> <laughs>